All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. And if you want to, just to give you a heads up for later in the service, if you want to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. We'll get there to be a few minutes, but if you want to mark your place, John 1, Revelation 5, save yourself a few pages later. Feel free to do that. Most of us, when we think of a courtroom... Our thoughts convey a very serious, a very proper, even to be truthful, an intimidating environment. And we understand and know why that's the case when we think about courtrooms, because the nature of the proceedings with, with victims and defendants and outcomes, I mean, the, the things that take place there deeply impact people's lives. But have you ever been in an environment where you know you're not supposed to laugh and you get tickled or something is funny and so you're trying to not laugh knowing that you shouldn't makes, makes it even worse as you're trying to do that? I, I feel for court stenographers who, who are always writing the proceedings sometimes to think about what they must endure and, and how they keep it together. Because I came across some actual testimony, some testimony between attorneys and witnesses. And I just want to share some things that have taken place in actual courtroom proceedings. The attorney said, what is your date of birth? July 15th. What year? To which the witness responded, every year. Okay, well, thank you for that. Another attorney said, what gear were you in at the moment of impact? Gucci sweats and Reeboks. <laughs> now, follow this. How old is your son, the one living with you? He's 38 or 35. I can't remember which. Well, how long has he lived with you? 45 years. <laughs> All right. What was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke up in the morning? He said, where am I, Kathy? And why did that upset you? Because my name is Susan. <laughs> to a police officer. And where was the location of the accident? Approximately milepost 499. And where is milepost 499? Between mileposts 498 and 500. <laughs> My two favorite. Doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? All my autopsies have been performed on dead people. And the attorney said, all your answers must be oral, okay? Now, what school did you go to? To which the witness replied, oral. I'm telling you, been there. I, Real, real life testimonies. I don't know. But as you can tell, the quality and the character of a witness is an important thing when it comes to proceedings and, and when you consider their testimony. And in John chapter 1, we've just completed the prologue in his gospel where John has laid a theological and doctrinal foundation as to who Jesus Christ is, saying he is the exact same as, he is equal to, he is God. He, he sets this up in the first 18 verses. From there, he will proceed in the rest of the gospel to prove these claims that he's made in the first 18 verses. And the first thing he does is kind of call a witness, someone to come and say, who do you believe? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? And that witness 
is John the Baptist. He's the first witness that John calls in his gospel to testify to Jesus. We met him, if you were here several weeks ago, in verses 6 through 8, where John clearly stated uh, that John the Baptist was not the light. Jesus was the light. John was not the light. He came to witness to the light. We also saw that week in verses 19 through 28 that John the Baptist denied and said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, and I am not the prophet uh, who's come to to give the message that the Messiah is coming. He says, but I am simply the voice of one. I am a single voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Messiah. So that brings us up to John chapter 1, verse 29, where we read this. The next day... Okay, well, so the next day then tells us that the day before was when John had had this interchange with the priests and the religious leaders about who he was, who he was not. He told them, I'm not those things. And so now the next day, he, and this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the first testimony by the first witness called in the gospel of John to identify and say who Jesus is calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let me pause for just a moment, kind of set the scene of what's taking place here so you get a little bit of background. Sometimes we may look at the gospels and we see something here and we go, well, why is John the Baptist just now telling us who the Messiah is? I mean, didn't he know already? Weren't he and Jesus related? So wouldn't he have known, you know, from being together at family reunions and all this kind of stuff that Jesus is the Messiah? So why is he just now telling people who he is? Well, Jesus and John were related. They were second cousins, but John didn't know Jesus' full identity until God revealed it to him at Jesus' baptism. So apparently, Jesus' life as a child, uh, as a, as a preteen, a teenager, and a young adult was very normal. We have one account in Scripture of Jesus going to the temple and teaching the religious leaders and the teachers there. Uh, that's the only account we have anywhere of Jesus' life up to his coming and making his ministry public at his baptism. So Jesus came to John to be baptized as John the Baptist was beginning his ministry. And the first three Gospels record this event and tell us that after Jesus was baptized, that, that the Holy Spirit descended uh, like, like a dove. And there's discussion on that as to whether or not it was a real literal bird that fluttered down that was there. Or if the Holy Spirit in the shape and the image of as he came down to, to verify and say that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, just resembled either the flight pattern or maybe the shape of, of a dove... And and so, therefore, it said that he descended like a dove. But the Holy Spirit descends and kind of has this recognition. Uh, this voice from heaven speaks, and people hear the, the voice from heaven testifying that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so, knowing that, we look at John chapter 1, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Meaning, he was preexistent. He's always existed because he's God. He goes on and says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
So he said, I, I didn't know him, but I knew that I was supposed to come and to be baptizing and preparing for the time that he would show up. Verse 32 says, and John bore witness. I've told you before, you're going to hear this word witness and testimony and testify over and over again. John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him the second time he said that, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so this is God speaking to John, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. So John gives his testimony and he tells what he has seen and what he's experienced. So if we can kind of piece together maybe the accounts from scripture from the time that John the Baptist was in his mother's womb and the Bible tells us that he leapt uh, when Mary, Jesus' mother, entered into his presence, uh, that he leapt recognizing that the Messiah was there. John may have sensed or he may have thought there was something special about this Jesus guy because there's no doubt in our minds that John the Baptist's parents told him about the unique circumstances of his own birth, how his father couldn't speak and how the angel had come to announce all this. And it's very likely that he had heard these very similar stories about Jesus' birth, his miraculous conception, uh, his, his, you know, the, the virgin birth and all these things. He probably knew these things, but again, he'd heard these stories, but watching the normal life of Christ, nothing stood out. You know, there was nothing, uh, no, no lights or whistles or things that were, were bells going off for that. So he had this inkling, but he had no hard evidence until God comes and says, you're going to baptize someone and you'll see the Holy Spirit descend and remain up that person. That is the Messiah. And so when Jesus approached John to be baptized, John was somewhat hesitant. He said, I don't, because I think there were these suspicions, these thoughts going, you're very special and unique. I don't think I should do this. But Jesus said it needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. So he does indeed baptize Jesus. And then the confirmation comes. And it may be kind of like what Pastor West said this week where he goes, wow, my cousin's the Messiah. I knew it. You know, I knew it the whole time. He, he is the Messiah. I, 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 all the things g come together. Like Lois Lane, you know, knowing that finding out that, that Clark Kent is really Superman. Sorry if that's a spoiler alert for some of you. But, you know, w when you know that information, then it all makes sense and go, I see it now and I see this. And so all those things kind of come together and become clear at that point. But here's what happens immediately following Jesus' baptism. He's led into the wilderness for 40 days for a time of, of testing and of temptation. So John now knows who Jesus is, but he doesn't know where he is because he disappeared. He went off into the wilderness for at least 40 days. So after that 40 days, maybe longer, maybe Jesus took some time after the, the temptation to, to do whatever. But after this time, whatever it is, Jesus comes back to the place where John is baptizing. And as John sees him coming, because he now knows Jesus' identity, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you see how all these pictures kind of intersect here now, and things are, are becoming clear, and Jesus' identity is being revealed. So John turns the spotlight on Jesus and begins his job of saying, The Messiah is here and who he is. And he describes him as the Lamb of God. But John, the gospel writer, doesn't stop there. Between uh, verse 29 and the end of the chapter, and I put in your notes all the names, all the titles, all the descriptions that are given of Jesus in the first chapter of the gospel. 
And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just one chapter of the Bible. And look at this list of names. Rabbi, which means teacher. Messiah, son of God, king of Israel, son of man, and him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All these titles and descriptions and every single one of them true as to who Jesus Christ is and telling us partly to in each of these descriptions what he came to do. And I told you before that the aim of John's gospel is that people would believe that Jesus is the son of God so that they might believe in him and then have life. Life, John says, in his name, not just full and abundant life on earth, which Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 10, but also eternal life with God forever. So John begins by telling us who Jesus is, and then he uses his life to prove and testify to that identity. As I was looking at all these names and preparing and praying through things this week, I thought about a a sermon clip I'd heard one time of a man named S.M. Lockridge who described Jesus in a very powerful uh, way and challenging as he did these descriptions and these titles of Jesus throughout the message saying, do you know him? He said, let me tell you about my Jesus. And he goes with all these titles and stuff and he says, do you know him? Do you know him? And I thought about this and I went back and found it and I thought, you know what, rather than me trying to tell you all the things our Reverend Lockridge said, I decided to go ahead and let you just watch his descriptions, his testimony of who Jesus is as he challenges us with this question, do you know him? So as you watch this, think not only about his description that you'll see in the video and this message that he delivered, I believe it was back in the 1970s actually that he delivered this message, but also think about the description we've seen so far in John and remember that the most important question is, do you know him? So let's watch Reverend Lockridge. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. 
cleanse the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Yeah, I couldn't have pulled that off. <laughs> I, I wish I could describe him to you. That's great. I, I love that line in there. Well, you see, that video, it reminds us that who you believe in matters. Who or what you place your faith and your trust in makes a tremendous difference. And when your trust is in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. So John the Baptist's description is an important starting point for us in knowing this Jesus. Because here's the thing. When people heard him say, Lamb of God, they had an instant picture in their mind to reflect on as they looked at this man who was walking toward them through the crowd. Because you see, a lamb was an important part of Israel's history. And several images may have popped into their mind when they heard lamb of God. And any one of them would have been accurate but incomplete in fully describing this common, ordinary-looking man that John had said is the Lamb of God. A couple of pictures that may have come to mind. People may have thought of Genesis chapter 22, where they remembered Abraham taking his only son, Isaac, to go and sacrifice him to God. And as they made their way to this altar, Isaac asked a question whose answer echoed for centuries to come. This is incredible to me to think about Abraham's devotion to God, that when God said, take and sacrifice to me your one and only son, that he would get up, the Bible says, the next morning and go to do this. And on their way to that place, Isaac, the child, says, my father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replied, and this is the lesson that we learn from this picture. God will provide. 
God will provide, he tells Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, in case you're not familiar with that story, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his, his son. God said, Abraham, I see that your heart is fully surrendered to me above all else, and I don't want you to sacrifice your son. But it shows us the importance of a fully surrendered heart that says, God, nothing, nothing and no one will take a higher priority in my life than obedience and complete surrender to you. But many people looking upon Abraham and Isaac's situation called this a dress rehearsal for the time when God would send his son and he would go through and his son would become a sacrifice where God's wrath was poured out upon his son that we might be forgiven of our sins. So God's sacrifice was completed and fulfilled in Jesus. So people hearing this Lamb of God may have brought this picture of ultimate sacrifice to their minds. And they would be right because Jesus would give the ultimate sacrifice. As God demonstrated his own love for people that he would sacrifice his son so that we might know him. Others, when they heard the term Lamb of God, may have thought about the Passover Lamb. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, during the final plague upon Egypt, the Lord was going to pass through the land and kill the firstborn in every household. And the Israelites were told before this was going to happen, the evening of, to take a year-old, unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb, and they were to kill that lamb. And they were to capture some of the blood as part of that killing. And they were to eat that lamb and prepare for their journey out of Egypt. But they were going to... Also, they were given instructions in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. They were told to take a bunch of hyssop. It's a plant, a bunch of leaves on it, little clusters. They were told to take some hyssop, to dip it in this lamb's blood, and put it on the doorpost and across the top lintel, the doorframe, on all three sides. And that night, as the Lord passed through, when he came to a door, if blood was on the doorframe, he passed over. He didn't go in and kill the firstborn in that household. So that lamb's blood covered and protected those households from death. And I want to tell you, the Bible is so amazing to me in its detail. As you note, the tie-in between the Passover lamb and Jesus Christ, God's ultimate Passover lamb. Because in John chapter 19, verse 29, we read of the moments just prior to Jesus' death, and John writes this, that a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. Did you ever notice that detail? You probably never thought much about that. But in Exodus 12, they're told to take a hyssop branch and apply the blood. And now here in John 19, a hyssop branch gives the Lamb of God enough liquid to wet his lips and his mouth and his tongue to say, it is finished. It is finished. I've received the full cup of God's wrath for all sins. It is finished. And then he died. And so the Passover lamb shows us the lesson that's taught there is that blood rightly applied, rightly applied protects those who believe. Because here's the thing, if the people didn't believe the Lord's command that he was coming through to kill those in the household that night, the firstborn, they wouldn't have killed the lamb and put on the door doorpost. And if so, they would have experienced what God had promised. But they did believe. And likewise, the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilling on the ground 
when rightly applied through our faith and our belief and our trust in him, would cover sins and protect those who believe in Christ as their Savior from death and eternal separation from God. So when we believe, when we rightly apply the blood of the Lamb of God, we're protected, we're covered by God's grace and his mercy. The third picture, maybe John's listeners thought about the lambs that were killed each day in the temple as a substitute for people's sins. And again, the image of those lambs dying for sins was right. People would come and they would, they would confess their sins. They would acknowledge and they would touch. They would lay hands upon this lamb and that lamb would be killed as their substitutes. And the, the lesson teaches us that just as lambs died as substitutes for the sins of men, so would Jesus, the lamb of God, die for the, sin, for the sins of other people. Maybe they thought of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 53. In that chapter, the Messiah, who, who is a real person, the Messiah is a person, is described symbolically as a lamb. And only after Jesus' death did everybody connect the dots on this prophecy. But Isaiah 53 says, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's talking about a person here and how the Lord's going to use that person, and that person's death and sacrifice pays the price for our sins. And he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like the sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so John's words, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, brought all of these associations and these pictures to mind. And so people were left to figure out and say, how do these images, how does what we know about the Lamb of God, how do they apply to this man that John is now pointing to that he's identifying and the answer is that he fits all of those descriptions and then some. I told you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 because the images of the lamb that I've told you thus far are all looking back in time in history. But John, speaking of the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, also gives us a picture that looks forward because we see in the book of Revelation where John is writing his uh, visions of heaven and heaven of what he has seen there. He speaks of the glorified Lamb of God. The one who came, the one who died, who would be exalted because of what he had done. He says in uh, Revelation chapter 5. Starting in verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And you see the capital L there, it's referring to Christ. They bow down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And look at what this incense is, people. We talk about just our walk with God, the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are an offering, an aroma, a fragrance that's pleasing to God. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's a number you can't even begin to count, John says, of all these who are gathered around, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped man what a picture what a picture of the glorified lamb jesus christ and john the baptist says here he is the lamb of God. Everything you've known about the Lamb is true. He will complete, He will fulfill, and He will do even greater things for you into eternity. And as Reverend Lockridge said, do you know Him? Do you know Him? R. Kent Hughes uh, talks about how Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is the center of our faith, uh, how his life is summed up through the Bible. And I put this note in there. It says, Abraham and Isaac prophesied the sacrifice. The Passover applied the principle of the sacrifice as the blood covered and protected those who believed and who applied it in faith. Isaiah 53 personified the sacrificial lamb by depicting it no longer as an animal, but as a human being. But John the Baptist identified he identified the sacrifice and then in revelation we see that lamb magnified and exalted and worshiped and glorified for all of eternity now i'm not a a, a big art person to to know and to, to read a lot in but as i was reading this week someone mentioned a picture and i, I did a google search on it, it was like man what a picture and i hope our our uh our screens, uh, they're, they're fading. They're not doing real well. Um, this is a picture called On Use Day. It's painted by Francisco de Zuberon, uh, who lived in, in, in the 1600s. This painting was done between 1635 and 1640. Can you guys kill lights if that'll help us just a little bit, give some more power on it? But he painted this picture, and it's called On Use Day, which means the Lamb of God. And you see a lamb there. You can kind of pick that part of it out. What you can't see, ah, thank you. Notice that the lamb's feet are tied which is how they were prepared for sacrifice and you may notice it's kind of black and there's a little bit of brown that's not our camera stuff that imaging that is a lamb laying on a piece of wood a center beam for a cross and ever so faintly right above the lamb's head you can see a little white dot and there's a little line in the 1600s he faintly painted a small halo over that lamb his depiction of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came to lay his life willingly on a cross so that others could be forgiven, could be made right, and have a relationship with God. It's an amazing picture, an amazing picture. Thank you guys for, for setting that up up there. This morning, I want to make crystal clear how you can experience the new life the Lamb of God makes possible through his death on the cross. The Bible says if you confess and repent of your sins and believe that Jesus' death was for you, you can be saved from eternal separation and torment away from God. 
Your sins will be covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit will live and dwell within you, uh, making you, the Bible says, a new creature, a new creation. That means you will have God himself living within you to guide and direct you and help you all the days of your life. And it means when your time on this earth is over, you will be with God in eternity forever along with that multitude that we just read of in Revelation chapter 5, worshiping and serving the Lamb of God. But John says in in chapter 1, verse 12, that we receive God's gift of salvation by believing in Jesus Christ and by receiving uh, his sacrifice as on our behalf. It really is that simple. So what I want to do is I want to share with you just a a simple prayer. And I want you to hear this prayer. I want you to think through it and see kind of the, the, the logistics of this. But here in just a moment, I'm going to ask and we'll all bow our head and we'll close our eyes. And if you have never given your heart and your life and you've never prayed to believe and to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. John the Baptist said he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And today you can experience that description of Jesus in your life personally. Now, I'll tell you on the front end that these words aren't magic. It's not that you say the right words and you say the right thing. It's about the attitude of our heart because God sees the heart and God knows. But you can say something similar to this. Dear God, I know that I have sinned. I'm sorry for my sins. Lord, I turn away from my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And Jesus, now I ask you to come into my life. Would you please forgive me of my sins? Would you please give me the gift of eternal life? And Jesus, would you take control of my life? Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. Please help me live my life for you. That simple. That prayer really is that simple that you can become a child of God today.